0: I really planned this. I do appreciate you being here today. And, you know, it seems like I've got so many things swirling in my mind that I feel out of kilter in many respects. And uh, for whatever reason, I just thought it was my turn. But uh, nonetheless, I did show up. So I guess that's a good thing. We're going to be looking today at 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. I invite you to look with me at verse 16 in our study. Again, we thank you for being here. If you are visiting with us, we want you to know how much we appreciate you being here. We would love to have you come back and be with us at every opportunity that you have. In our study today, we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3 in verse 16 in what I believe to be a microcosm of the gospel of Christ. In other words, we have the gospel in miniature form. Because in verse 16, Paul gives us a synopsis of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There have been a lot of messages that have been propagated down through time. There have no doubt been many messages that have been helpful and beneficial to the human family. But none more so than the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was and is God's power to save the world from sin. And so, as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 in verse 16 today, I want us to think for a moment or two about the gospel in miniature form. And Paul here, in a very succinct way, makes some statements regarding. Christ and what has been done on our behalf. He begins by saying, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And really what Paul is saying here is that the gospel of Christ is something that we can put our confidence in. It is an undeniable fact. The mystery of godliness You remember in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul talked about that mystery that had been concealed, but later revealed to, as he would say, the holy apostles and prophets. That mystery was simply the fact that God would include the Gentiles in His scheme of redemption. So the idea is that both Jews and Gentiles can be a part of the family of Almighty God. As Isaiah said, many years earlier in Isaiah chapter 2 when he said all nations shall flow under the house of Almighty God. So with that in mind let's just look at what Paul says here. First Paul said that God was manifested in the flesh. What this says to us is that Jesus is God. Now there are a couple of thoughts here. Number one The pre-incarnate Christ, and this has to do with His perpetuity, the perpetuity of the Word. Jesus was not and is not a created being. The Bible says in John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. In other words, we're talking about a timeless being, aren't we? Jesus is the first, the last, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. As Micah said many years earlier, Micah foretold the birthplace of the Christ. And you remember, the Bible tells us that the angels heralded that birth. But Micah said that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem of Judea, and it was He whose goings forth are from everlasting or from the days of eternity. That's the one we're talking about here, the pre-incarnate Christ, and so His perpetuity and then His power. You remember again in John chapter 1, John would say, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus was the agent by which the world came into being. He was the source of this world. He was the one who said, let there be light. And there was light. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And then he said, by Him were all things created in heaven and that are on earth. So we're talking about the perpetuity of the Word and the power of the Word. That has to do with the pre-incarnate Christ, but then... Paul said, God was manifested in the flesh. This has to do with his incarnation. The fact that Jesus took upon himself human flesh, tabernacled among men, as we might say. You remember in John chapter 1, verse 14, John said, speaking of the word, that eternal word or logos, and the word became flesh. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace. And truth now we have promises concerning the coming of the Messiah the coming of the the Christ don't we going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 following the fall of man in verse 15 God began unveiling his redemptive plan and moving forward in time you have the unveiling of God's scheme of redemption that redemptive plan involved the coming of the Christ and so over and over again you have the Bible picturing for us the coming of this promised seed. For example, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah said in chapter 7, verse 14, that He would be born of a virgin. In chapter 9, verse 6, He said He would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, pointing to the coming of the Christ. But then, Think about this. The Bible not only identifies the promise of His coming, but the purpose of His coming. Why did Jesus come to earth? When the angel announced to Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, that Mary would have a son, you remember the angel said that he would be called Jesus. For it is He that will save His people from their sins. Jesus came to earth because of sin. He came to save the human family, didn't He? That's why He would say in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Paul would write in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, that Christ, he said, This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why Jesus came. And so Paul here, in his synopsis of the gospel, begins by saying, God was manifested in the flesh. So we have the manifestation of the Christ. Secondly, though, he talks about the vindication of Christ. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit. Now Jesus did not need justification as we do today because Jesus never sinned, did He? You remember the Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Him who knew no sin, He became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus never sinned. And I think what Paul is saying here is that God the Father vindicated the Son And you think about the claims that were made by the Son concerning His identity. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, didn't He? And Jesus demonstrated Himself time and again to those about Him as the divine Son of God. So what about this vindication? He was vindicated by God when He raised Him from the dead. Because Paul said in Romans chapter 1 verse 4 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power. According to the Spirit of Holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. That is an incontrovertible fact, isn't it? Jesus was put to death, buried in a borrowed tomb, three days later, came forth early on the first day of the week. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, raised from the dead. But then there's a second thought here that is, he was also victorious as a result of the resurrection from the dead. Well, victorious in what way? Number one, Jesus defeated death. Now the Bible talks about death and the fact that death has plagued the human family going all the way back to the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Paul would write in Romans chapter 5 verse 12, "...through one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin." Death is a consequence of man's trans- transgression in the Garden of Eden and yet Jesus defeated death didn't he the Bible says for example that Jesus destroyed him who had the power of death that is the devil Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep just as Jesus died was raised again the third day Paul makes the case in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians that we too one day will be raised from the dead. Matter of fact, Jesus said, you remember in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, I am he who was dead, but i am alive. He said, Behold, I am alive forevermore. And then he said, I have the keys of death and Hades. The Lord Jesus has the keys to the cemetery. So not only did he defeat death, he also defeated the devil, didn't he? Now you remember back in Genesis chapter 3 when God made the promise to send the Son into the world, that He would be the Redeemer of the human family. God said regarding this promised seed that His heel would be bruised and that the serpent's head would be bruised. With regard to the heel of the Christ, the promised seed being bruised, that occurred on Calvary, didn't it? But when Jesus came forth from the grave three days later, He stomped the head of the devil. As I read a minute ago in Hebrews chapter 2, He destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil. In 1 John chapter 3 verse 8, John said that Jesus was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. And you remember remember. For example, in the book of Revelation in chapter 20, a highly figurative chapter in the book of Revelation. And John in that chapter talks about the binding and loosing of Satan. And I would submit to you today that the devil is loosed when we fail to preach and teach the gospel of Christ. When we preach and teach the gospel of Christ, then the devil is bound in the sense that souls are being converted, and that ungodliness is being overturned. Now there's a third thought in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul said God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, and then he said, seen of angels. Now we have the ministration to Christ, the heavenly messengers. In Luke chapter 2, you remember the Bible talks about there were shepherds who were abiding in the fields, and they were watching their flocks by night. And the Bible says, an angel of the Lord stood above them, and the glory of God shone round about them. And they said, matter of fact, the text says, they were afraid. And the angel said, do not be afraid, for I bring you... Glad tidings of good things that will be to all people. Now, listen, if you would, to the angels' proclamation of the birth of Jesus. They said, For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. They announced the birth of Christ or this heavenly messenger announced the birth of the very Son of God. I said just a minute ago, an angel said to Joseph that that which was conceived in Mary was of the Holy Spirit, and that that she would bring forth a son, call his name Jesus, he would save his people from sin. Well, the Bible says that they proclaimed the birth of the Christ, but then they also praised the birth of the Christ. Because the Bible says in Luke chapter 2 that there were a host, a multitude of angels that joined this other angel. And the Bible says they praised God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill toward man. What a great day that was in the history of the world, wasn't it? The Christ had been born. And you remember what Paul said in Galatians 4.4, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, born of, a, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. At the right time, at the right place, the Christ was born, in fulfillment of all that had been written about Him earlier. So you have the heavenly messengers, but also the heavenly ministers the angelic beings in Matthew chapter 4 we have an account of Jesus being tempted by the devil that same account is recorded by Luke in chapter 4 of his gospel narrative and you remember the devil did his best to bring about sin in the life of Jesus and Jesus responded to the overtures of the devil by saying each and every time it is written but down in verse 11, after successfully overcoming the overtures of the devil, the Bible says that the devil left him, and angels came and ministered to him. In other words, they supported him, didn't they? Now that was at the beginning of his ministry. And then as we come to the close of his ministry, you remember, in, for example, in Luke 22, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and He is fervently praying to the Father about the impending cross. The Lord Jesus knew what lay before Him, didn't He? He understood that He would go to Golgotha to be put to death by His own creation. And so three times He is fervently praying to the Father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me, nevertheless not as I will, but your will be done. And in about verse 43, the Bible says that an angel appeared to him, strengthening him. So these heavenly ministers, that is, angelic beings, they came to support the Lord and to strengthen the Lord. So again, looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels. And then the writer says, He was proclaimed among the Gentiles, believed on in the world. So now we have an introduction to the preaching of the gospel of Christ, don't we? Again, the Apostle Paul said that the Christ was preached among the Gentiles. What does that say to us when we talk about preaching the gospel, going back to the first century? It says, first and foremost, the gospel is a universal message intended to bless the lives of all people. Go back and look again at Matthew 28, verse 19. Jesus said, "'Go therefore and make disciples of all nations.'" baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the gospel, as as Isaiah announced back in Isaiah chapter 2, was intended to bless the human family at large. For example, again, when he talked about the kingdom of God, the church, and he saw it as an exalted mountain, and he said, Into which all nations shall flow. So the idea is the gospel is intended for everyone. There are no exclusions when it comes to the gospel of Christ. And when you think about the universal message of the gospel, what is it you see in the book of Acts? Well, you remember Jesus said prior to ascending to heaven in Acts chapter 1 in verse 8, The apostles would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then he said to the end of the world or to the uttermost part of the earth. They would go forth preaching and teaching the gospel of Christ. And so you have that gospel moving beyond Jerusalem, Judea, and then Samaria, Acts chapter 8, when Philip went down to Samaria and preached Christ to those people. But then, what about the urgency? Of the gospel, Do you think the people in the first century understood something about the urgency of the gospel of Christ? You remember Ezekiel back in his writings many, many years ago? God said through the prophet Ezekiel, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God's interested in people, isn't He? He's interested in the souls of people. And the Bible says that God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Peter said, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There is this sense of urgency because of the danger of sin. Let me tell you why sin is so dangerous. Because ultimately, sin separates us from God, doesn't it? And you remember Paul in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Because sin separates us from God, ultimately the consequences of sin, borne out by Paul in Romans six twenty-three, the wages of sin is death. The flip side of the coin, though, the gift of God, eternal life in Christ Jesus. God is interested in people being saved in hearing, believing, and obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as you look at the first century church, they genuinely believed people were lost and dying in sin, so they did their best to make known the gospel to a lost and dying world. Ever thought about how many people will step out into eternity today? They tell me that someone dies in this world every second every second of every minute of every hour of every day. you are talking about a lot of people being swept away into eternity. Out of all the people that step out into eternity on a daily basis, let me ask this question. How many of those people are right with God? How many of those people are ready to meet their maker? The gospel is an urgent message. And if people don't have the opportunity to hear it, believe it, and obey it, it's a tragedy. So you think about the preaching of the gospel and then the power of the gospel. The book of Acts records for us the receptivity of large numbers of people to the gospel of Christ, doesn't it? I mean, when you talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, There were many, many people in the first century that had the opportunity to hear that gospel. In Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost Day, the Bible says some 3,000 people obeyed the gospel. They heard Peter and the other apostles preaching about the death, burial, and resurrection of the Christ. They had been indicted as having crucified the Son of God. And the Bible says when they were pricked or cut to the heart, they cried out to Peter and the rest of the apostles, and they wanted to know, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, you need to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. Verse 41 says, some 3,000 people obeyed the gospel on that occasion. If you turn over to chapter 4, in verse 4 of the book of Acts, the Bible says that they were teaching the people preaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. The word believed there is a synecdoche. It is a part for the whole. When Luke records there that those who believed became a part of the kingdom of God, All he's saying is they had obeyed the gospel of Christ. In Acts chapter 5, verse 14, and the believers were increasingly added to the Lord. How were they added to the Lord? They repented of their sins. They were baptized into Christ. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I mentioned just a moment ago, Acts chapter 8, when Philip went down to Samaria, preached Christ unto those people. Luke said in verse 12, they believed the preaching of Philip concerning the kingdom of God, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were baptized, both men and women. Over and over again, you read of the effects of the gospel, don't you? Acts chapter 18, verse 8. Many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. There were a lot of folks that were receptive to the gospel. Now some did, no doubt, reject the Christ. They rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they did that at their own expense. Because Jesus said, He that rejects me and receives not my word has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day, John 12, 48. So you have the receptivity to the gospel and then the riches of the gospel. When you obey the gospel of Christ, whether you realize it or not, you become incredibly rich. And you know there are a lot of people in our world today, they want to be rich, don't they? I mean, they're doing everything within their power to gain a base of riches. It's all about materialism. It's all about money. It's about what we can get in this world. And yet, ultimately, when death comes, what do we take with us? Not a thing, do we? If you have $5 million in the bank when you die, guess what? When you die, it will still be there. Now, somebody else will get it, but you won't take it with you. Paul said, we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. we came into this world with nothing, we'll leave with nothing. But if you're in Christ, you have a bank account that you just can't believe. You remember in the book of 3 John? John wrote to a man by the name of Gaius, And he said his soul was prospering. In Ephesians 1-3, Paul said that all spiritual blessings are in Christ. And what Paul is saying there is, if you're in Christ Jesus, you are rich. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talked about the exceeding riches of His grace and kindness. So to be in Christ is to be rich. Rich because we've been forgiven of sin. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 1, 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. We have forgiveness, and we have a future, don't we? If you're in the world, you don't have a future. If you're outside of Jesus Christ, you have nothing to look forward to on the other side of eternity, do you? That's why you need to be in Christ. That's why Jesus said, Lay for yourselves treasures in heaven. A lot of people in our world today, they're more concerned about the here and now than they are about the afterlife. Well, let me tell you what. The afterlife's coming. The Hebrew writer said, It is appointed unto man once to die. After this comes the judgment. So here you are, you're outside of Christ. You're without hope, without God in the world. You die outside of Christ. No hope. None. You remember... There was a song many years ago. It was prior to, I guess, the era of some of us. There was a song that was made popular by Frank Sinatra. And the song was, I Did It My Way. You remember that song? Let me tell you what. You may do it your way on planet Earth, but I've got news. When you step out into eternity... You don't want to stand before God and say, I did it my way. I want to stand before God and say, I tried to do it your way. If you're in Christ, you're rich. If you're outside of Christ, I don't care how much money you have in the bank. I don't care how much land you own. I don't care how many boats and cars and houses you own. You're poor. You have nothing. You better enjoy it while you can. better enjoy it. Because when this world is over, that will be all she wrote for you. There's a final thing I want to share with you. The coronation of Christ. Paul said he was received up in glory. Did you know that Jesus occupies a regal position? Why? Because he's a king. And not only is He a king, He has a kingdom. Jesus said in John chapter 18, verse 36, as recorded by John, as He stood before Pontius Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If you have a kingdom, then you have to be a king, don't you? And Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. John said in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, He loved us, washed us from our sins by His own blood, and made us to be a kingdom and priests. So Jesus occupies a regal position. Let me ask you this question. Are you in the kingdom? Are you in the church? If you're not in the church of Christ, if you're not in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, then you're not among the saved. If you're not among the saved, that would mean you're lost. And that would be a tragedy. So he occupies a regal position and he has regal power. Jesus said, all authority, all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. The position of power that Jesus possesses, the Bible says He was raised and seated at the right hand of the Father, designating His authority. The Son of God sits upon a spiritual throne. He's reigning right now. Let me tell you how He reigns and rules through His Word. You know, you want to know something about the place of its power? It's this book right here. That's why you need to know this book. Because God in heaven legislates the church through this book. That's why Paul said a couple of verses prior to verse 16. But if I tarry long that you may know how to behave yourself in the house of God, the church of the living God. So I want to ask you a question as we close today. When you think about the gospel of Jesus Christ, number one, have you obeyed it? If you haven't obeyed it, bear in mind, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, that He will one day come with all of His holy angels. When He comes with all of His holy angels, He's going to begin to separate all nations as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. He'll set the sheep on the right hand, the goats on the left. To those on the right hand, he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Have you obeyed the gospel? If you haven't obeyed the gospel, then he's not going to say, well done. But Here's what he will say, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. If you haven't obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, I know you believe in Christ, you wouldn't be here. What would prevent you from doing what you know you need to do? You know, Paul said, today's the day of salvation. What if, you were, what if you were to be swept away into eternity this week, having never obeyed the gospel? You'd be lost, wouldn't you? And yet God doesn't want you to be. He doesn't want anybody to be lost. So here's what you need to do. Repent of your sins. Be baptized into Christ. Let God put you in the church. then be faithful, steadfast, immovable. If you're here today and you're not what you ought to be as a child of God, you're not living faithfully, could I encourage you to come home? The beauty of Christianity is that God is always concerned about people. And if you're in the Lord's church, you're still a part of His body. And God wants you to enjoy fellowship with Him once again. You can be a part of a great church. So if you're here today and you need to respond to heaven's invitation, why not do so as we stand and sing?